Father, we thank you that you are alive in Jesus and in the work of your Holy Spirit, that you are active in our world, that you are desirous to be active in our lives. And today as we speak, that you would take these words mostly from this text and uh, penetrate the, the very core of our being, that we would see transformation in our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls and our relationships. Help us today, we pray, on this great journey of following you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have been doing a series. Um, in some ways, it feels a little bit like a shotgun series. We haven't been like systematically going through a text. Uh, we've just been looking at a, a lot of kind of, I'll say in parenthesis, random subjects on what it means for us to live as disciples in the kingdom of God. Um, that our mission is to make disciples who know how to make disciples, baptizing them into a Trinitarian understanding of life, which is represented by water baptism, and then we teach them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. And so as we go through the text, we, part of what we're wanting is that we are hopefully teaching us to obey Jesus. Because if we don't obey Jesus, stay home. Go watch something else. Go watch football or something if you don't want to obey Jesus. That's what we're about. We're about being God's people that obey him. Jesus said, if you love me, you what? You obey me. Um, and I don't think God is a hard taskmaster suddenly saying, you jump through this hoop, jump over that there, go this. I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about primarily obeying him in a way that we engage our world with love. It's the great word of the kingdom is how we love. You know, we love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so as we, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are this beautiful, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful teaching that Jesus gives what it means to live in the kingdom of God. This is what kingdom living looks like. This is a manifesto of kingdom living under the rule and reign of an amazingly gracious and loving and kind and generous God. And that's why, and we often go back to it. It's not, if you, if you don't do this, you're out. This is, no, this is, this is the journey that Jesus wants to take us in to learn to live like this. And so the part that comes before this is when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast, not if, those are activities that we do, not to gain favor with God, but in a way that we can engage God, uh, separating ourselves to do that. And then he goes on to talk about this idea of treasure and anxiety and money which is a, an enormous thing, especially if you live in a city like Los Angeles where things are really expensive and money does not just come off trees. And you, we all got limited budgets. We have limited income with limited budgets, and we have to work it out. Into that comes this word, which is really challenging. The word treasure, well, I asked earlier, the, word, the, the, the Greek word for treasure is the word thesaurus. Did you know that? Thesaurus, it's a store, storage box, a treasure box. That's what a thesaurus, you go and you find different things. That's what the word treasure means. But I've been playing, paying close attention to words in the Bible. I think they're important. And Jesus, these are, in my Bible, they're in red because they means these are the words of Jesus. He said, do not. What does do not mean in the Greek? Anyone care to guess? 
It means do not. That's what it means. Do not. It, it's a command. It's an act. It's a verb. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Do not do that. Um, so if we're learning to obey the life of Jesus and the things that he says, if he says do not do this, do you think he means that we take it seriously? Do you think that in, when we read that text that Jesus is saying don't, you shouldn't have a retirement plan? Is that what he's saying? You know, is he saying you shouldn't prepare for your retirement in the future? Is he, do you think that's what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying. Because when you read the context of this whole thing, he's asking us to deal with the way that we see our lives and where do we put our affection. Our affection needs to be on Jesus and his love and his provision, not upon, look what we do for ourselves. Look what we have done. We'll read Deuteronomy 8 at the end, which is the, like the counterpart to this. We, we have a treasure. Our treasure is the, the life in Jesus that he gives us and asks us to live in the way that we engage and love every single person that we come into contact with in our world. Every single person. How do we know that? The Good Samaritan story tells us that. When we love our neighbor as ourselves. Who's our neighbor? The one that we don't really want to connect with. That's also our neighbor. So as we begin to live a life like that, of love and care and surrender and, and generosity towards others. We are, all, we are building up a treasure house. We're building up a thesaurus with many different things that we can pull out. That's for eternity. But when we store up for ourselves treasure on earth, when we just begin to hoard and keep for ourselves, actually, we don't take any of that with us. And we somehow we meet, need to be reminded about that because I think we forget. And in, and, and in the busyness of life and in the chaos of life and in the restriction of finance and the restriction and budgeting and all that, we somehow forget that God is still the provider of all things. And we need to remember that. It's really, really important that we do that. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in, but lay up for yourselves. It's an action we have to take. God doesn't do it for us. It's something that we have to do. When we do what he says, we're laying up things, and he's creating for us a, an amazing storehouse that we will you know, revel in for eternity. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he goes to this idea of the eye. And I want to read this from the message. Because it's such a... Eugene Peterson has a brilliant way of speaking about this. He says this, um, Your eyes, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. Your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. Isn't that beautiful? He's unpacking what the intention of that text was, is that Jesus is saying, 
what you focus on, where your eyes are, is what will be reflected into your life and will take root in your life. And if you become one that's consumed with you and what you are doing and you storing and making provision for yourself, you become looking downward, you keep doing this, your eyes get squinty, you, you establish in something in a dank cellar. But when you look at the, what God is doing and your eyes are open wide in wonder at his generosity and his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness, then your body lights up and it changes your perspective. None of this says you should not have a budget. None of this says you shouldn't provide. That's not what this is saying. It's talking about an attitude and a way that you live as a person in the kingdom of God. If you don't want to live under the rule of God, under this, this incredible loving graciousness of a kind God, and you want to live outside of that, then you better become squinty-eyed as much as you can and grab as much as you can and hold on for dear life. But when we one day get to the end, we're going to both go through the same thing and it'll all stay behind. All right? It's important for us to see that. No one can serve two masters. Do you know that? You can't do it. It's impossible. It doesn't matter what it is. And Jesus says, yeah, you can't serve God and money. It's just, they're incompatible. You can serve God with money. You can use your possessions and your things and your house. You can use things to serve God, but you can't serve both because you can only be focused on one thing. Where's your focus? You see, if you focus on these things, this treasure down here, and you take your eyes off the eternal treasure, you'll, you'll, you'll have some success in life. You might become really wealthy. You might become someone who gives money away. You might do all sorts of things. But you are still have taken your eyes off the prize, which is that we become like Jesus. Because that's the ultimate prize, is that we become like Jesus. Is that all right? You can't serve two masters. And then Jesus says, therefore, you know, this is what's following. Because of this, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. I hazard a guess that at least 80% of us in this room are anxious. We suffer from anxiety. Hazard a guess. We suffer from anxiety for numerous reasons. You know, what's the future look like? Will I have enough to retire on? I was talking to my mom one day. My mom's 85 and she earns a tiny little bit of money that's worth nothing. It's, here it's about $300 a month maybe. And she said, my fear is that I will outlive my money. She's anxious because she's going to outlive her money. Have you ever thought about that? I've thought about that. We get anxious. We think about it. We, we have anxiety about our children. Well, what's the world we're bringing them into? Will they grow up? So, you know, there's a study that's been going on. Parents are ang- so anxious for their kids in the city, so they, they're moving out, trying to go to smaller towns where it's more nice and picket fence and all that to raise their kids, except the kids raise up and then they go back to the city because that's where the jobs are. And then mom and dad are left alone behind the picket fence. And that's why I love, uh, Tim and Kathy Keller wrote that article, why it's a good thing to raise your kids in the city. You know, it's a thing because we have to learn to live free of anxiety. We're anxious about our health. 
We're anxious about our kids. We're anxious about our finances. We're anxious about our jobs. We're anxious about this. We're anxious about that. It grips us. And Jesus speaking to this, he talks about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear, where we live, kind of the things of life. But I think it applies to so many other areas. He's saying if you will allow your eyes to be wide open in wonder at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and how he's provided, then you can release anxiety from your life. It doesn't mean you don't work hard. It doesn't mean you don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean you don't think about your kid's future. It doesn't mean any of those things. It's, it, what it means is that we don't live in this place of anxiety. Anxiety flows from fear. Would you say that? The opposite of faith is fear. When fear grips our heart, we are in serious trouble. And when we have fear that grips us, the real issue, the real thing at hand is that we have lost the ability to trust God for our lives. And these are the three questions I believe that we ask that, affect, that are affected by trust and fear and faith. Is God able? Is God willing and is God trustworthy? Is God able to really take care of me and my family? And if he is able, is he willing? Do you know the, 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 that poor man with leprosy that comes in Matthew 8, in the first, after the Sermon on the Mount, and he falls down at Jesus' feet, covered. He shouldn't have been there. He should have been on the outskirts. He says, if you are willing... He knew Jesus was able because Jesus had been doing it. He says, but are you willing to talk to someone like me who's an outskirts person, a person that should not be on the inside? I'm one that's been discarded to the outside of humanity. If you are, I know you're able, are you willing? And Jesus said, I am willing. And he touches him and heals him. It's the questions we ask, but... I don't think we, can, we often articulate those questions, but they are the inside of us that create this place of fear and mistrust. Is God able? Is he willing? And is he trustworthy? Will he do what he says? And because we tend to measure God by our human standards, we think he doesn't want to do those things because he doesn't do it in the time frame that we think he should do it. Because we've forgotten that God's more interested in who we become and the type of person that he's shaping us to be rather than he just provides things, which he still wants to do. So this, is, this, this whole thing is around an issue of trust. See, if God gives you a home, I have a home. Thornburgs have a home. You guys have a home. You, live in, you might not own it. You live in it. You have a home. What is that home for? Is that, is that the place where you, just a, a castle that you retreat into, put up the barricades, no, no one comes in or out? Is it the place where you retreat from the world because the world is such a scary place? You retreat into your castle and you can breathe and you drink your beer by yourself and you do your little thing. Or is the home that God has given you a place of open doors and welcome to others? A place where others can find security and, and experience your hospitality, just as an example. You see, then you take in something that is a natural 
a earthly thing and you are using it to store up treasure by making it for people to find hope and love and care and acceptance in your home. That's an example. Or, I'm just my castle. Shut the doors. And you will die behind shut doors. Isn't that right? We have to be really careful, I think, as we look at these things. Our eyes need to be wide open on the shining one rather than squinty-eyed on shining things. Have you noticed how we get attracted to shiny things? You know, anyone met our pug, Griffin? Griffin is attracted to a shiny red light laser. If I just do this, he's running backwards and forwards. And so much of our lives is that shiny thing here, shiny thing there, new shiny thing there, new shiny thing there. We've taken our eyes off the shining one, the one who's in incredible light. The one, when you look at shiny things and the sun goes off a shiny car, you've got to squint at it because it's hurt your eyes. But when you look at the shining one, it actually causes your eyes to open wider. It is so glorious and that light floods into your system, into your whole being. Don't be anxious. I love the way that Heidi read this text. She said, when she got to the birds, you know, look at the birds of the air. She said, look. The real, I think one of the essence that is happening here is that we have stopped looking at what God is doing. Are you meant to literally go look at the birds outside and say, oh, look at the birds. Oh, because they cared for, I'm fine. I don't know if that's necessary. It's a, it's a picture. It's a metaphor of something. I think what it's saying is that we've stopped looking at God activity in our world. We've stopped looking where God is active and in action and doing wonderful things which would enable us to learn to trust and believe that he's able and willing and trustworthy and he's doing. We've stopped looking. And I think we need to walk around our days looking for the activity of God. And mostly it's in the places we least expect it. Because we want to come in and we want to see God's activity in an, in an angelic visitation. But mostly God's activity in His action is seen in the lives of people. When you look at them and you see God is alive. God created. God is doing beautiful things. And He wants to come and restore each of these people back to Himself into perfect unity with Himself in a loving and intimate relationship. Start looking at people like that. Maybe a little challenge, a spiritual exercise this week. Maybe you could just do it. I don't know. Is look at that person who's homeless, who you always see. Look at them and engage them as a human being created in the mighty image of our God. And engage them. I love the story Josiah used to tell about the lady that lived on, the, you know, if you go on the corner of Green and Lake, she stands there, smile, be happy. All that. He used to engage her. She's a person. You will see the activity of God. We've stopped looking. We've stopped considering. Consider the lilies of the field. We've stopped considering the beauty and the majesty of God's creation. Think if God could create all of this, and all of this is like a drop of water in the palm of his hand. Surely, surely, he can, he's, he's, he's got me. He's got my back. Surely. Let me ask you a question. Do you have your kids back? Do you, go, have you, do you got your kids back? 
Did you have your kids back? Yeah. You got our kids back. But that doesn't mean you don't make them go through hard things so they learn. Is that right? Your kids back is not you just give them anything they want all the time. No. Sometimes they have to earn it. Sometimes they have to go through some pain. Sometimes they have to do some waiting. Sometimes they go under discipline. Sometimes you say no. That doesn't mean you don't love them or have affection for them or want the best for them. Why should it be different with God? If we create his image and his likeness, aren't we doing the things that he does? You see, when we talk about living as disciples of Jesus within the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God, then we have to say we want to become like Jesus and do the things that God does as well. We want to act like him. So if you keep saying yes to your kids, that's not the way that God acts. Then you've started looking at shiny things called your kids rather than the shining one. As an example. Anxiety comes from fear, this worry. So I want to say this. If you serve money, Jesus saying you can serve God and money. If you decide to serve money, you had better worry. You had better take on as much anxiety as you can because there's nothing else you can do. That's what he's saying. He said, if you serve God, don't be anxious. Paul, writing in his letters, often says, be anxious for nothing. But in prayer and supplication, bring your request to God. Don't be anxious, but have engagement with God. Bring these requests, these things that you fear, bring them to him. But don't be anxious. Don't worry about it. But if you don't have that, you had better worry. And you better worry a lot because it's in your hands. And oh, God help you. They're in your hands that have to do this. That's scary. I think Jesus is saying to each one of us, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Because we say, he says, oh, you have little faith. This really what he's saying is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you dare to trust me? See the story in, in Matthew 8, after the, 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 the leper who gets beautifully healed by Jesus, is the story of the centurion. It's not even, he's a Gentile. But he understood something. He just comes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I trust you. Why? Because I understand authority. I trust you. Bam, his servant is healed. Jesus didn't even go there. Because he trusted. Because he understood. Do we understand? If we look at, as we, to be disciples and we look at the Great Commission, this side of the Great Commission is all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. You remember that? Therefore go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. What's the next part that closes it off? And lo, I am with you till the very end of the age. So surrounding this issue of, dis- of us living as disciples, trusting Jesus in the way that we engage our world is that he has all authority that's invested with us and he's with us. Isn't that cool? My challenge to us is, will we put that to the test and say, we will trust you? Someone once wrote, the primary freedom we have is always the choice of where we will place our minds. The primary freedom we have is always the choice of where we will put our minds, what we will think about. 
what we will give attention to. That's our choice. And what we do is we've set our minds on McDonald's and expect Carl's Jr. Doesn't work like that. If you set your mind on things of the world, don't expect the things of God. If and vice versa. Sorry? <laughs> well, let's be very Christian. Chick fil A. Remember this, we, again, this, remember we spoke about this journey of discipleship. It's a, we're on a, on, a, on, a, on a life's journey. It's a progress over our lifetimes. It's not, you're not meant to get it today and suddenly you'll never have another anxious moment and everything's, your eyes are... You know. No, this is a process of us growing in God over a lifetime. But you have to give attention to it every day so that you can grow. I want to read you quickly, if I may... This is my prayer that I've been praying every day in the last 10 days since I wrote it down. Teach me, Jesus, to live my life today the way you would live it if you were me. Can I read that again? Every morning I'm waking up, I'm praying this. When my breathe app goes off three or four times a day, I, I pray this prayer. Teach me, Jesus, to live my life today the way you would live it if you were me. So that it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're a teacher. How would Jesus live your life as a teacher? Do you think he's got something to say? You know, if you're an experiential thing, if you retired, if you manage homes, if you're a filmmaker, a photographer, a lawyer, whatever. How would Jesus live if he were you in that life? I think that's a good question. He said, I, I only do what I see my father do. What does that mean? It just means he's trusting that God's got his back and God's going to help him. He does that you can live free of anxiety and worry. So in this text, I won't be much longer, in this text, Jesus said, this is about my Father in heaven. Look out your Father in heaven. It's a relational thing. That can only come out of establishing a relationship. You see, I had a father, but he wasn't a father to me. Make sense? He was just this man. I have one photo of him. He was my father, but he wasn't a father to me. And many of us are calling God Father, but we're not allowing him to be a father to us. And if he's not a father to us, we've got nothing to trust in. If we have nothing to trust in, we live in worry and fear and anxiety. And if you live in that place, you've got to take care of you. But if you have a heavenly father that you trust, another text says, if you ask your father for this, do you think he's going to give you a scorpion? He's a good God. We have to make sure that link is right. What's a good way? Um, I don't often speak about this in church, talk about money. I think that giving is a litmus test of our trust in God. 
financial giving is a litmus test of our trust in God. But because I don't believe it should be coerced, I don't think we should be given under duress or under manipulation or under emotional whatever, that's why we don't take up offerings. You say, there's a bucket, give. No one's, no one's going to check up on you. Why? Because if you give under emotional duress, it doesn't mean that God has changed your heart. You could be given because you feel guilty. We don't want to give like that. We want to give because we have seen the generosity and the beauty and the kindness of our Father in heaven who's asking us to be like him. And because God so loved the world, he gave his best. That comes out of us as well. Is that right? So a litmus test of our trust in God is how, how we handle our money. It's one of them. It's not the only one. I think time is another. But money is definitely one because Jesus says you can't serve God and money. So that's a litmus test. Ask yourself, how are you doing in your test? How are you doing? Have you reduced yourself to tithing and that's what you do? Or have you allowed God to break in and ask you to, every day, what should I do with my money today or my, this month or this year, whatever? Are we bringing that to the Lord, asking him? Because if you just suddenly build your finances into your budget and you tithe, and I'm, I'm all for that because I think it's a good level playing field. If you don't believe in tithing, I rejoice because the New Testament always takes us higher, so you should give more. So that's fine. But it's a level playing ground. But eventually we build it into our budget and it just becomes a non-entity. You know, that has for us over the years. Been tithing for 37 years. It becomes just part of your budget. I don't even think about it. Therefore... It's possible that it no longer becomes an idea of generosity of my heart where I'm hearing God to be generous. So now God might challenge me, this month, why don't you give it all away? What? No, you said you wanted to trust me. Yeah, but not that much. <laughs> you hear what I'm saying? I'm, not, I'm, I'm using an extreme for anything. It's, do you trust God? And it's a litmus test. And it doesn't mean that all your giving has to come to the church either. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, where are you as a person? Saying, I trust you, Lord. I trust you. I'm not going to be anxious. I trust you. And again, this, I mean, obviously we can unpack all of this, and I don't really, haven't got time to do all these things. Um, say two more things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the way of living, the right living in God. Seek that first. All these other things will get added because God will take care of you. He's committed to it. His commitment to take care of you might take you through a desert. Might take you through a season of unemployment. Might. I don't know. But will you trust him? Will you trust him? Then the other big word I would love for us just to throw out there and maybe one day we can do a talk on it is the word distraction. I think we get distracted. I think it's the greatest sin of our time actually is distraction. We're distracted by so many things that draw our attention off the main things. Distraction. 
get on an airplane and look at a family today with kids and they all got iPhones and that, but they want them to be distracted. They don't want to engage with them because they want to have a restful time on the plane. They don't engage their kids. They have an iPad. But we do that to ourselves. We are distracted by all sorts of things. And I, I just think we need to be more saying, Lord, what is it that you require of me? I'm not laying that upon you what you should do. I hope you're hearing that. I'm challenging you to say, God, what is it that you require of me? What is it that you require of me and my time and my money and my home and this and that? What is it that you require? Because I want to be obedient to you. You don't have to be obedient to Terry. You've been obedient to Jesus. What is it that you require of me? That's a beautiful opportunity for you if you don't know how to hear God to say, I need to learn how to hear God because I want to hear what he has required for me. Isn't that right? It's, we could read quickly um, one verse in, of this. Micah. I think it's Micah 6. Micah 6 verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Do you think that's pretty clear? He's told you what is good and what does he require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what he requires. It's like, oh, okay. Easier said than done. You see, when Jesus challenges them and says, the Gentiles do this. You shouldn't. He's saying, they haven't understood what it means to live under the, the mighty and generous and gracious reign of God. They're outside. They're going to come in. The day is coming. You read John 10. He says, I have this big flock that's coming. But he's speaking to these Jews and he's saying, they don't get this, but you should get this. Maybe you could in time read these texts, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians 9, where it talks about giving and being a generous giver and providing for others in need, etc., etc. There's a verse that said, God loves a cheerful giver. When I was a Catholic, we used to sing, God loves a cheerful giver. Give it all you got. He loves to hear you laughing when you're in an awkward spot. You know, God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because that's how he is. Is that right? And I close by reading a text and we'll be finished. It's cooler, I hope, today. I've left many things unsaid that I hope you will dig into and investigate because um, it's a big subject in the Bible. This is Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is, a, is the book where... Or the, where Moses is reminding them, just before he dies and hands over leadership to Joshua, he's reminding the Jews of everything that God has done. So it's, a, it's bringing to their attention. He says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 days, these 40 years in the wilderness. Look, listen to this. That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not, commandments or not. And he humbled you 
and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Do you know what the, the Hebrew word manna means? Does anyone know? What is it? That's what that word means. Manna. What it actually means. What is it? They didn't know what it was. It was this heavenly stuff. What is it? Manna. Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Isn't that amazing that we see all that coming into the New Testament? Your clothing did not wear out on you. Forty years, the clothing did not wear out. And your foot did not swell these 40 years. I wish they were true of me. Knowing then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks of water, fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Isn't that beautiful? In the New Testament, we have the same stories, that these, these pictures of what this eternal life in God looks like. That begins now. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Why? To do you good. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your forefathers as to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, shiny things, money, whatever, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. It's a beautiful text. Actually, there's some beautiful things in it. There's some scary things in it. But the essence is this. Keep your eyes on the shining one. Trust him. He gave you the ability to make the wealth, to do the studies, to do the job, to make this. He gave you that ability. So always honor him, remember him, respect him, trust him. Is that right? I put that before you today. Will you think on these things? Will you go home over the next month, the next three months, whatever? Look at your checkbook and say, where's my money gone? Gee, the verses before that in Matthew about fasting. That's what comes before, fasting. Praying, giving to the poor, prayer and fasting. In your thinking of this, would you be willing to fast so that from something so that you could give that to somebody else? Would you be willing to give to the poor? 
It doesn't say if you give to the poor, when you give to the poor. Would you be willing to be proactive and think about it rather than walk past that poor person that you see everyone and say, oh, I've got a quarter in my hand. Would they actually think, no, this today, I'm going to be planned. I'm going to give them 100 bucks. I'm not saying you should. I'm just being dramatic because you've thought it through. You've chosen to love this person. What is loving a person? It's doing good toward that person. Or maybe it's finding them a job or whatever. Can we be like a classroom and you could repeat some things with me? Would that be okay? Could you say with me, God is able. God is willing. And God can be trusted. We see it in Jesus. Father, would you help us to be less squinty and more open-eyed with wonder? who you are that we would say Jesus we want to live as your apprentices we want to live close up to you we want to hear from you learn from you do what you do talk like you talk be kind and generous and patient and all the things that go so that we trust you knowing that you got us Lord as I sit just there there's Emmy little little baby just trust Jess. Jess has got her back. She trusts Jess. Just to put a full trust. Help us in that innocence to, to recover some of that so that we can live like that, trusting you. As we come to the table, the Lord's Supper, this afternoon, it's, a, it's an opportunity be, to be reminded of the trustworthiness of God. The Old Testament is a record of God's promises and Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise that God was trustworthy to his word. He was able, he was willing, and he did it. We come and we take of the cup and we take of the bread as a reminder of the great love that God has for his world and for us that he sends Jesus the very, very best that he had. He didn't skip. He sent the very, very, very best. Because his, his eyes too were on the shining ones, which were his people actually. Because it says we are the light of the world. It's an amazing text. As we come, let us remember. Let us ponder. Let us learn to put our trust in you. This, this meal being the reminder of that. In Jesus' name, amen.